Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. And on today's show, we're going to seek to be of the mind of Christ when it comes to politics. Yes, God has things for us to understand and to live when it comes even to political order. And that is what we will be looking at as we go through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Today, we're looking at Article 16 of Political Order. And to handle this most sensitive subject, especially in Irish pub rooms, we have a great cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians today, Pastor Merit Dembski, Pastor Peter Hill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith, as your host today. Uh, to remind you, this is a live call-in show. You can call in at 1-800-730-2727 and interact with us. Ask us your questions about the right relationship of church and politics. You can also find us on social media at KFUO. And also you can email the studio, KFUO at KFUO.com. Brothers, welcome to the show as we talk politics today. Hey, glad to be here. Me too. Well, I'm glad you're there in studio. And just for clarity's sake, I am not in studio. I'm calling from my office. Uh, uh, the uh, life in the parish uh, has demands on my time. And so uh, I'm glad that we have modern technology where we can connect together and be together uh, to talk about this subject, even while not physically together. So thanks, thanks, brothers, for being there in the studio for us today. Mm-hmm. Our pleasure. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dig into this then. I'm going to read just just the first line of Article 16 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession of Political Order, and then we'll discuss this just because I think they reflect what we confessed in the Augsburg Confession itself and summarizes it well. So this is line 53, um, which is weird that an article starts uh, with that numbering, but that's the numbering that we have. And so... Uh, And we can talk about why that is here in a minute as well. But the line 53 says the adversaries accept Article 16 without exception. In it, we have confessed that it is lawful for the Christian to hold public office, sit in judgment, determine matters by the imperial laws and other laws currently in force, set just punishments, engage in just wars, act as a soldier, make legal contracts, hold property, take an oath when public officials require it, and contract marriage. Finally, we have confessed that legitimate public ordinances are good creations of God and divine ordinances which a Christian can safely use. All right, so Pastor Dembski, go ahead, and and what's this summarizing for us? What's this teaching us uh, is our Lutheran confession of faith when it comes to political order? The fact that we can engage in politics in our culture and not worry that we are somehow breaking God's law by someone... uh, being a judge or being a senator or being a congressman or something like that, that we can uh, serve in our in the government uh, that is established for us, um, as they say, uh, 
uh, later that uh, it's a uh, sorry, uh, what's it called? That we can also use like medicine and we can build and we can eat and drink. It's another thing that exists in this world that we can participate in um, and that God has established it for good order. It's a field that's open for us within our our vocation and our calling as Christians, Uh, even to serve as a soldier. Uh, I know that this was something at the Reformation that was a really big deal. Uh, There was a group of soldiers who were in a a monastic order of knight soldiers, uh, knight with a K, Uh, Knigget soldiers, maybe? Uh, Maybe. And and they wrote uh, and said, can we can we continue our service as soldiers? And Luther wrote back that, indeed, soldiers, too, can be saved and can have faith in Jesus Christ and that they are to fulfill their duties uh, just like it was given to them. Uh, even as John the Baptist speaks to soldiers uh, in his preaching for repentance, and he urged them to faithful service, even in their role of, of soldiers for the Roman army, he encouraged that very thing. There is a there is a time and a place for Christians to serve in their government, to serve their government. Scripture is full of, of calls to pay your taxes and to honor your authorities, even as it comes to the fourth commandment that talks about how we are to um, honor and respect those with authority. That includes not only our parents, but also those who have authority over us as governmental officials. But what do you say then when you say, well, but, you know, the governments do things that are sometimes evil, uh, wrong against God's command, um, murder, and killing is wrong, and that's that's the work of a soldier. How, how do we respond to that and say it's it's part of God's order that we serve in these vocations, these callings in life uh, and stations, uh, but yet we see what they're responsible for? How do we do that as godly people? I think that a big part of that is, is one, as far as we look at our terms and our terminology, uh, the work of a soldier isn't murder. Uh, and this is one that I'm I'm kind of careful with. When we talk about murder, it is killing without authority. But the work of a soldier who sometimes, uh, unfortunately, is called upon to take life, that's not murder. That's killing with authority. It Death is always bad. Don't get me wrong here. But when it is authorized out of warfare, that is something that is not sinful. And the fifth commandment speaks about you shall not murder, not merely you shall not kill. Uh, so it's a, it's a more specialized term. And for those soldiers who are given the, the proper and even godly authority uh, to put to death, it is done within that system. But no soldier takes upon themselves in order to kill or murder somebody else. Instead, they they do just that. But as far as the broader question goes, it's a good question because in a lot of ways, folks will uh, look at the government and they'll say, I don't like the way the government is doing this or that. How, how much can I participate in this governmental activity uh, knowing that some of my, uh, maybe my tax money is going towards something that I disagree with or something that I think is sinful? Uh, And in that case, we as Christians are called to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, but also to work as Christian citizens to change those things that are inappropriate. Uh, And so to be a faithful Christian citizen is both pay your taxes and pray for your government and continue to work for a good, godly government where and when you are. 
And, and we live in kind of this unique situation where we don't live in a monarchy where we have absolutely no voice. You know, we have the ability to go through the proper channels to try to bring about remedy to situations that uh, we would disagree with. And so uh, to a lot of what you just said, a lot of this has to do with justice and order. Um, even talking about war, the difference between murder and killing having to do with order um, and whether it's about justice, just war, and of course you can dig into all the just war theory and all that kind of stuff that we you'd talk about. And I know um, Pastor Earl's excited to talk about all that. <laughs> um, he's not shaking his head or nodding, <laughs> but um, but all the you know that it would be justice and there would be judgment and all of this. But um, later on, you hear this idea that uh, a lot of this, uh, when you have order, uh, it pushes against the idea of. Uh, private dealing with these things that were just one-on-one -on -one saying you did something to me I'm going to get you back but it's going through the proper channels to have judgment with justice that, sorry with that said though I think that it's helpful to remember we as Christians are called to be good citizens but that's not to say that being a good Christian is to be a good American, and that if you're a good American, whatever that means, or a good good citizen of your nation, that automatically you are a good Christian because you honor your government properly. And I think sometimes that's a category that we get confused, where we say, if you're a good citizen, then you're automatically a good Christian. And, and I think sometimes we go a little too far with that. And so that is something I want to be cautious about. Well, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. Pastor Smith, go ahead, did you Pastor have something? Okay. No, go ahead, Pastor Adams. I was just going to say, uh, tailing, piggybacking on what you just said about not being necessarily a good American equating to being a good Christian, so oftentimes we continue to try to form Jesus to be our political standard and all this kind of stuff. Like if we if we are heavy-duty Republican or Democrat or Independent or you know, whatever, insert political opinion, we'll try to make Jesus fit that uh, that uh, character that we they, we want him to, rather than Scripture being the definer, will let the political lines be the one that define who Jesus is and what Christianity looks like, rather than going back to Scripture and saying, okay, what does Scripture say about how I should be living right now, and how do I do that faithfully where I am in the 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 political environment that I am. Yeah, I, I think uh, you've hit on several topics here that uh, um, I'm going to attempt to bring together this way. One, I, I kind of mentioned um, the numbering here that we begin with paragraph 53, if you're following the Concordia Reader's edition of the Lutheran Confessions. And here we see that it's connected together with a few things um, that, that are flowing forth um from kind of one idea. It goes back, really uh, begins numbering with paragraph one in article 13, number and use of the sacraments. And we talked when we covered that uh, uh, article and so forth, uh, how that's the centrality of the gospel in the church. That's where the gospels at work, justification delivered to you, Christ for you, right? And we talked about how that's the gospel in action. And then flowing forth from that, because the gospel is the predominant factor here, then we have Article 14, that there should be order in the church. Then we have Article 15, that 
as a part of that order in the church, there are human traditions and how they are used in the church. And then we get to this issue of political order, order in the civil realm as well. And so I think all of these things are, are connected together in this sense, that they all flow forth from the gospel. How do we live as gospel people. And um, I, I think that you hit on several things there, uh, especially Pastor Dembski, you, you talked very specifically about this order. And I mean, it's not, it's not a poor name given to this article when it talks about political order. What we are concerned about here is with order. Uh, because if we all just kind of take it upon ourselves to do what's right in our own minds, then we live in a judge's world, right? And that, uh, that never... Uh, leads to peace and tranquility uh, and and the work of the church flourishing, that leads to chaos. And so we certainly don't want that. And so in order for that to be in place, God has established as gospel people order for the church and for the civil realms. And so I think that connects then into the following and, and also, I wanted to pick up here, too, uh, while we certainly talked about, as this pertains to the vocation of soldier quite heavily, um, we certainly don't want to gloss over the other things that are listed there either. Legal contracts, taking oaths, um, marriage, uh, different things like this are all part of that order in the civil realm that we can engage in. Even when, um, you know, we certainly see in Scripture things, especially pertaining to oaths, Jesus encourages us not to take oaths and so forth. Um, he's, he's not necessarily eliminating that we shouldn't do that in the civil realm. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he affirms it when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that when you do so, you do so seriously. But uh, again, this, this uh, is all connected with how do we have good order um, as, as gospel people living in the civil realm in our daily vocations, in our daily lives. And so I think that this plays out then as we continue on. I'm going to continue reading here in Article 16, um, picking up with a line or paragraph 54. This entire topic about the distinction between the spiritual kingdom of Christ and a political kingdom has been explained in the literature of our writers. Christ's kingdom is spiritual, as it says in John 18.36. This means that the knowledge of God, the fear of God and faith, eternal righteousness, and eternal life begin in the heart. Meanwhile, Christ's kingdom allows us outwardly to use legitimate political ordinances of every nation in which we live, just as it allows us to use medicine or the art of building or food, drink, and air. Neither does the gospel offer new laws about the public state, but commands that we obey present laws, whether they have been framed by heathens or by others. It commands that in this obedience we should exercise love. And I'm going to pause there. I, I think that this is a, a real key point here, is that this flows forth from the gospel. And I want you guys to talk about that, um, especially as it, as it relates here. Um, and, and I also wanted to highlight especially, neither does the gospel offer new laws about the public state, but commands that we obey present laws. And Pastor Dembski, you talked about that as, as we live in America what that may look like, you know, um, as we don't live under a monarchy. But actually, at the time that this is being written, they did live under a monarchy. And yet, so it still applies there. And so there can be different systems that are used throughout the world. And yet all are ordained by God. We get this especially in the teaching of Romans 13, uh, where we are taught to be submissive to the governing authorities, because they're all established by God. And that can cause some great uh, wrestling for us, especially as we consider things like, well, 
Hitler, <laughs> right, uh, in history and some other pretty evil authorities. And yet we are still uh, to, to be a part of this civil order and, and yet still have a voice, but it flows forth from the gospel. So go ahead, brothers. What do you have to, to comment and, and provide to the commentary on this? First and foremost, Christians are those who are justified and made new by Jesus Christ, by his suffering and death. And this is the reason that first uh, Melanchthon and the confessors point out Christians are Christians. And as Christians, then their works are going to flow from that basis. And so part of the question is, why does a Christian live for the sake of good order, not to make them better before God. Being a better citizen doesn't end up making you a better Christian, but uh, being a better Christian, being a Christian who is forgiven by Christ, who is strengthened and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, does make you and should make you a better citizen. And so it flows from your identity in Christ into your identity as a Christian citizen and as a participant in your local and regional government. So would you say verbal criticism is good enough? Like just, you know, criticizing the government for what they're doing wrong by, by me lending my voice. Is that enough? Is that being a good Christian citizen? Um, in, in the way that we are structured here in the United States, that is a way to continue to serve as a Christian citizen. So long as it's only on Twitter, though. I didn't go that far. Oh, okay. Uh, Facebook then, too. Okay, yeah. Well, and indeed, we, we see some places where uh, there can be constructive conversation. And I think that part of, part of Pastor Dembski's point may well be that some of our political conversation isn't always very helpful, and it's not always very constructive. And so I'd like to say constructive voices of opinion are really helpful as we live out our Christian citizenship. Those places where we are really critical um, or spiteful are not the best Christian witness and also are not always um, in accordance with the fourth or the eighth commandments about how we use our speech. My, my main point there was just that there are good orderly ways to go about letting our voice be heard versus just complaining to someone at the table or shouting out something on Twitter or Facebook and saying, this is horrible and I hate this versus like going through the proper channels to actually get it fixed versus just... You know, so the voice can be heard, but through the proper channels to actually make a difference. Indeed. And some of the other ways that that voice can be heard is certainly in a nation where uh, you're called upon to vote, uh, to go vote as a Christian citizen uh, and to vote uh, before not just for your nation, but also uh, considering God's word and considering those places where God's word has spoken and is clear on some of these issues that the government also speaks about. But there's also all kinds of other participation, uh, certainly in paying taxes when your taxes are expected of you, but also then going on and serving uh, by signing your contracts. If you're called upon to testify in court, do that and continue to do all these things. When you're discontent, there is a, a process forward for you as a Christian to disagree, but to do it constructively and to do it to build up the nation and the the system and the order in which you live and not to try to burn it all down and so, I, I think sometimes we try to burn down our governmental structure before we try to uh, contribute to it as christians it sounds like you're saying that we should follow these commands and obedience so we should exercise love in how we do it yeah yeah it sounds almost like what you were saying 
it sounds a lot like what I, yeah. it sounds like exactly what I was trying to say anyway. <laughs> well, and and I, uh, one of the points that we were talking about just before the show was that this was one of the areas in which the the con- the. Uh, authors of the Oxford Confection. Confe- confection. Con- <laughs> confession. <laughs> this just became a baking class. Yes. No. <laughs> the, um, that uh, the the drafters of the confession um, were in a, like the 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 church was in agreement with what they said, and yet we get this long explanation, this apology, defending it even further. And yet, uh, it, knowing that contextually there was people trying to say, wait, no, Christians shouldn't be a part of the culture. Today, it seems like in our American culture, there's a lot, there are many who would say, um, you're not being a good Christian unless you are like converting the government to be the church somehow. You know, and it's like, well, no, there's, there are these two separate worlds. This is not the kingdom um, that... Christ has come to establish, you know, because there are people that would talk about America almost like the promised land, like this is God's promised land. It's like, no, his kingdom is still a spiritual one. And yes, we live in this world where we can have a voice and where we can um, look to the good of our neighbor and care and love, and yet um, not uh, do so in such a way that we pretend that this is the final goal, that this world is the, uh, the one that we're trying to make the kingdom of God or something like that. We want to be careful that we don't confuse politics um, and our our civil order and our order of excuse me also our order of salvation and we're kind of back to the being a good Christian and being a good being a good citizen doesn't make you a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's more to it. Uh, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is really, really important. And being a good citizen of whatever country you live in doesn't replace that. I, I think you've hit on a couple key points here. I like the move in talking about that when we have our conversations, that obviously we do so in love. And and I think that it it also plays into the couple fronts that we have going on here. And you talk about the front that we face in, in American Christianity today or in just kind of the American civil realm is to to make, you know, our government a Christian government. And, and that would have certainly been around at the time of the Reformation. But uh, especially as you take a look at the Augsburg Confession itself, it seems that they have more in mind two specific fronts that they're facing, um, which are more just... They're, they're voicing their disapproval and withdrawing. And so this is not actually being done in love then, right? Uh, and so I would say kind of the two fronts that they're facing are the perfectionism of the Anabaptists, uh, those who we might say, you know, the Amish today uh, would, would definitely uh, be Anabaptists and so forth. And they withdraw and create their own isolated communities uh, where they are separate from the government. And we even see this with special tax uh, um, you know, um, uh, breaks and or, or exemptions. That's the word I'm looking for, tax exemptions for the Amish and things like that. Uh, I would say the other front that they have in mind actually is the uh, monastics, the Roman Catholic monasteries and so forth, uh, where they seek to abandon participation in the secular world, and they hope to please God by their vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty and things like that. And, uh, and so they just, uh, you know, we kind of, on both of these fronts, what we see is a disapproval of, nope, that's, that's just, you know, that's not godly. 
the secular world is not godly. And I think that we still face this too, uh, this temptation, especially in American Christianity, where we just want to withdraw because the secular world is evil. You know, things of the flesh always evil, right? And and we kind of confuse what all of that means. Uh, and, and what we don't understand uh, in the move that they're laying out here is what we call the two realms theology or the two kingdoms theology. Um, and so that's really what they're laying out here, the spiritual kingdom of Christ and the political kingdom. So uh, just with about a minute or so before we take a break, why don't you go ahead and set that up and then we'll come come back to it. What are we talking about here with this two kingdoms, two realms theology? So the two kingdoms uh, have two sides. And so usually we talk about the right hand and the left hand. And the right hand kingdom is considered that spiritual kingdom where it is God's law and God's gospel that work there, that deliver Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sinners, and it calls all people to faith, and it calls all hearts to believe. And there, the command is to love, and to continue to cast our eyes and our hearts in faith to Jesus. But then on the left-hand side is the one of civil order. Now, this civil order can be seen uh, as government, certainly. And there it is justice and discipline. And that order is to preserve peace, to promote growth and well-being, to care for people, uh, but also to uh, then, whenever there's a need for uh, people to be punished, in order that civil order can be kept, it comes up in that left-hand kingdom. Sometimes people will say, oh, that's easy. That means that the right-hand kingdom is church and the left-hand kingdom is state. But I, I don't think that's a really good simplification because we do see order and governance even in church. And so there's places where church works as a left-hand kingdom. I know that my church is a is a 501c3 incorporation with articles of incorporation and bylaws and constitutions and all kinds of good stuff. And that's not the gospel. That's not right-hand kingdom stuff. But without that left-hand kingdom stuff, it makes the right-hand kingdom stuff a whole lot harder to do. All right. Thanks for setting that up. And uh, we also want to establish here that both kingdoms, and this is why I prefer the two realms, are underneath the kingdom of Christ. Uh, and so he rules in two realms, the right and the left. We'll talk more about that as we come back from break. So come on back. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for... Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Your smartphone takes you anywhere instantly. 
At a click, you can read, watch, or hear just about anything. Some websites are good, some are bad. Some sites truthful, and others are deceptive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hear the truth of Jesus daily on Worldwide KFUO. Using today's smartphone technology, KFUO brings the gospel to you wherever you are. KFUO is just a click away, 24 hours a day. KFUO.org. On display at the Smithsonian, the world's largest museum, is a quilt known as the Bible Quilt. It was made by Harriet Powers, an African-American farm woman from Clark County, Georgia, and first exhibited at the Athens Cotton Fair in 1886, an artistically created quilt admired over the decades of its history. Harriet Powers, born a slave and thought by many to be an illiterate woman, was in fact quite literate. In a discovered letter she'd written, she tells of learning to read with the help of the family's children. She continued to read and study on her own, resulting in the exquisite quilt blocks she created, depicting 15 major scenes from the Bible, taken from her own study of the Bible. Engage with the Bible. Discover in the story surrounding it its many layers. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. And welcome back to Concord Matters. Uh, we are talking today about of political order, Article 16 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And people have different ideas about civil government and its relationship, especially to the church. There are those that think civil government is evil and something to be avoided, not trusted, that we should just withdraw from it entirely. Uh, and then there are others who look to civil government to kind of solve all human problems. They give it unquestioned support. And we kind of have these tensions that are always constantly going on. And yet, Scripture teaches us that this is order established by God for our good. And we talked just before the break about how we have these two kingdoms, these two realms, if you will, that both are under God's order, God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, uh, but he rules in the right and the left. And uh, we have that of the church and the state. And Pastor Hill, you were talking just beforehand, uh, just before the break, that is, um, that uh, sometimes we see those as separate and, and they don't kind of intermingle. And you gave the example of your church being a 501c3. Um, and how that would be a left-hand realm situation uh, or, or thing at, at work there and is not a matter of the gospel. But what about on the other hand, where, you know, especially in the United States, sometimes we talk about the separation of church and state. Um, we think that this is in the Constitution. It's a misunderstanding, but we're not going to make the show about constitutional understanding. We're going to make it about uh, faithful confession according to the Lutheran confessions, but, uh, you know, so sometimes we, they think, oh, well, you know, Lutherans, we're, we're on board with this, that, uh, you know, church and state, they're separate, they don't, they don't need to intermingle and don't, well, what's the relationship here? If we're, if we're saying that both, as, as uh, Line 54 says, this entire topic about the distinction between the spiritual kingdom of Christ and the political kingdom has been explained in the literature of our writers, and, uh, and it goes forth to kind of lay that out. You know, how, how is it, how are they related? They're related because, first and foremost, Christians recognize their role as Christians. And as they 
exist in both realms. Christians then serve, one, to speak the gospel, and also to contribute to that good order. But even when Christians are doing that, we recognize that the left-hand realm, the one about peace and order, is God's kingdom, but it's for everybody. Everybody lives within multiple different left-hand kingdom orders. We can talk about our family as being a left-hand order, where we have the people who are in authority, moms and dads, grandparents, um, and we have people who receive that authority, children and, and others. And so that is one example of a left-hand kingdom authority. But also in the family, you see uh, moms and dads teaching their children the faith uh, and communicating that saving message of Jesus Christ at the same time. And so families are, for Christians, both right-hand and left-hand kingdoms. And we want to make sure that we talk that uh, you can, you are certainly in both at the same time. And so you don't uh, merely divide them and say, oh, my family is left-hand kingdom and my church is right-hand kingdom, and that's just how it is. But we talk about the, there's the spiritual and the role of civil order. I think that's well laid out and uh, really helpful for us, especially as we understand then that permeates all of our other relationships as well, as I am in the vocation of being in the workplace. You know, for us, it's uh, pastors. Uh, and so, they, it, you know, uh, seems, uh, you know, kind of easy for us because we work in the church, but even for our people, right, as they are out there in these secular jobs and so forth, that they have this understanding that you just laid out well in the family that uh, it's not like they kind of check their Christianity at the door. Oh, that's only for Sundays and what I do in church and gathering together. No, I'm a Christian in the workplace, in the workforce, whether I serve as a soldier, as we talked about, it can be a godly vocation, or as I serve as a, maybe even as a politician, or or even if it's just kind of working in a print shop or whatever it may be, right? Um, I, it's not like I check my Christianity at the door. And likewise, that we understand that this order is for the sake of peace in the world, right? And that, um, you know, it's it's a matter of justice and living out rightly. I, I think that's very helpful for us to kind of to have that understanding. So thank you for that. Uh, Pastor Dembski, anything to add? Uh, just that uh, we all, we're all about identity in our culture at the moment. We're very much of who we are. And, and if we don't have that baptized child of God, Christian identity at the base, then we definitely run into this issue of Christianity is our Sunday thing. And then um, I'm an employee at this computer place the rest of the week, or I'm a waitress, or I, I work in the government in this way or that way, versus undergirding everything is I'm a baptized child of God. I am forgiven and redeemed. And now I bring that to wherever I am um, to love the people that I'm uh, uh, caring for or uh, serving either way. Um, and that that ends up being the reason that we behave the way we do in those uh, secular realms as well. And I think that's very helpful for us to understand as well. I especially like you, like the way you phrase it there that, you know, this is the way that we love people. And I think that this specifically, it talks to, uh, as we came back from the break there, I talked about how on the one hand, we have those who 
just view civil government as evil and we should withdraw. And then the irony there is, is that you end up setting up your own government, right? We still need these, this sort of order to live together as people. But then you have the other people who uh, I talked about, you know, who kind of, you know, look to the civil government to kind of solve the human problems. We, they make it an idol almost, right? And they give it their unquestioned support. And, and I think that that happens because, we know that we are called to, to live in love and at peace with our neighbors, and yet if we divorce our Christianity and living as gospel people from that understanding, then what ends up happening there is that we just end up setting up a new religion, a new false idol for ourselves. And so, you know, I think I, that's a very helpful thing for us to understand the relation as well, is that both are connected with living in love, as we have been loved from God, so we love our neighbor, and that this does all flow forth from the gospel. Then. And, and real quick, one thing that I think we take for granted is that definition of what love is. We say, oh, love one another. But actually digging into what that means, what is love? Because so oftentimes we want to take the world's definition of love and however it changes um, to be the definition that we're reading about here to exercise love, um, to be permissiveness or to be um, full acceptance of anything at all whatsoever. It's like, well, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about love here. So when we're reading scripture and we read to love or we're reading the confessions and we hear about uh, we should exercise love, getting back to what they're talking about uh, definitely helps because if we are at the whim of whatever culture says, whatever, whatever, whenever that may be of what love is, then we're going to be drastically changing what all of this actually looks like when we're living it out. All right. And uh, part of uh, what what is going on there then, too, is, is that uh, when we try to live out in love and, and we do so not according to God's word and how he has directed us that this actually looks like, then we start kind of inventing our own kind of ways of that, what that looks like. And we're going to see that as I continue reading here uh, as one uh, – Karlstadt uh, uh, specific, specifically did it. So I'm going to continue reading there. Uh, just just right about uh, line 56, uh, paragraph 56 there. Karlstadt was crazy to impose on us Moses's judi judicial laws. Our theologians have written more fully about these subjects. They have done so because the monks spread many deadly opinions in the church. They called holding property in common the governance of the gospel. They said that not holding property or not acquitting oneself at law were evangelical counsels. These opinions greatly cloud over the gospel and the spiritual kingdom and are dangerous to the commonwealth. For the gospel does not destroy the state or the family, but rather approves them and asks us to obey them as a divine ordinance, not only because of punishment, but also because of conscience. All right, so what are we, uh, what are we talking about there? So the monks would commonly take a vow of poverty and chastity and of, of selflessness, and they would go away and live within their monastic community, or some monks would just go away and live in the desert by themselves and would give up on everything around them. But the call of the reformers and even the call of Jesus is not to separate from the world, but to be in the world, not to be of it, not to be just like uh, the unbelievers around us, but rather to live in service as Christians 
to the world. Uh, Jesus was dealing with this when he spoke to the Pharisees, and he said, you think that you're doing so well, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, when you take everything that you would have used to care for your parents in their old age, and you give it to God. Uh, they had a special word for this in the Bible called korban, and they would say, I give everything to God, I, I give it to korban. And then when they would give it away, they weren't able to care for their parents. And Jesus said, what you're doing isn't right, where you designate what you were called to use for Christian order, for civil order, to care for your parents. You gave it to God and think that that gets you out of needing to follow the fourth commandment. It doesn't work that way. You can't just pit your role as a civil servant to your parents or to the government or to anybody else against your role as a Christian. And that is what the monks were also trying to do, saying, well, I'm a monk, so I can go away and do this special spiritual thing. And it means that I don't have to participate in this world and in this life at all. Uh, Not only that, but I'm holier because of it. And I'm holier because of it, indeed. Uh, but we Christians aren't called to run away like the monastics. And we aren't called to try to take over the government uh, like some of the other Reformation communities were doing, too. Instead, we are called to live in this world, to be faithful Christians for whom Christ died, and to live out that calling one to another. And yet, even with that, um, it's, uh, it's important that we in our Christian communities have that fellow, fellowship and that connection um, that... Our only I'm trying to figure out how to say this because our source because our source of communion and and being joined together we find in the Lord's Supper we find at communion you know we see our community because of Christ and yet having uh, the opportunity and being deliberate about joining together and having time together to build those relationships together is also important that uh, we don't just say that church is a one-hour thing that happens on Sunday, but then all of our relationships and key things that we are involved with in life are actually over on the field or the court or in the office or, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, yes, we still live in those, and we're not saying that the Christian life is about uh, seclusion from the secular world, but there is an idea here of uh, growing together with the people that are in Christ, that we have that fellowship and community in Christ. Um, yeah, I, I, am I saying that right? That I'm trying, I'm trying to draw that line there, but I, I, I really think that you are, as you are pulling these things together and saying, "Hey, we are called as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we grow in this fellowship that Christ has put together, and in this fellowship we serve, but we aren't separatistic about it." And so we we serve as a community and we serve as individuals, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about our Christian love and service in in the world uh, without running away from it. And I, I think that's always the difficult line for us to walk is because what we want is, you know, a, a straight line where there's black and white and we just say, well, this is where this is and that's where that is. And uh, and yet. As, as we play that out in life, especially in a sin-broken world uh, where that distinction can sometimes be messy and, and, and cause us great struggle and we have to think about things, right, uh, it becomes very difficult for us to, uh, to wrestle with this and, and how it plays out. Uh, but we do well, and I like the way that you guys keep phrasing this, when we 
when we do so motivated by Christian love, when we consider our vocation, our station in life, and uh, how, how am I best um, uh, giving glory to God and serving faithfully in this vocation uh, as a child of God? And, and I also want to bring back to what you said there, uh, Pastor Ill, about, uh, you know, uh, you, you were talking about the monastic vows and so forth, um, and we'll cover this again if we ever get to Article 27 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, uh, which speaks specifically of monastic vows, and so we'll get more in-depth on that. Uh, but you also mentioned that other Reformation communities were, were wrestling with this as well, and that's uh, who we began with there was Karlstadt, who was kind of with Luther at the beginning, but then very quickly broke away and so forth, and, and he was doing some of this mess as well. And I'm especially thinking of John Calvin over in the city of Geneva, where they set up a, a Christian community with a Christian civil law, and they would uh, actually kick people out for not being good enough Christians. They were setting up a Christian utopia, and that that's the other side of the coin that uh, sometimes we see people head towards, is trying to make, uh, to make a Christian utopia, a Christian community by law, and not by the gospel as we are called to love one another. Yeah, which is is itself kind of a, a reiteration of what Roman Catholicism has tried to do, even at the time that this is being written. They are the civil law themselves, right? And uh, and and not necessarily always living rightly in that. And uh, yeah, you know, trying to uh, establish those means uh, through force and through the civil rule uh, doesn't always go well and healthy. And yeah, you mentioned Calvin there. Uh, it, it's it's what he tries to do as well, and we, we even see this still with, again, kind of that Reformed thinking today that predominates uh, even many in American Christianity uh, that think that we need to kind of set up a Christian government and uh, Christian cities and so forth. So, yeah, we definitely have that tension. Uh, there's there's others that uh, have, uh, you know, kind of uh, violated this as well, and even outside of Christianity, and that's where the apology continues with uh, paragraph 58, so I'm going to read there. Uh, uh, it mentions Julian the Apostate in Celsus. Uh, just for uh, reference, before I continue reading, Julian the Apostate was uh, a Roman emperor from 361 to 363. He was the last non-Christian emperor, actually, and he attempted to uh, revive traditional Roman religious practices at the expense of Christianity. And so the church is the one that calls him apostate, which means a formal disaffiliation from an abandonment of religion. That's where he was uh, definitely focused focused. Uh, Celsus was a Greek philosopher, and he opposed Christianity, especially in the work uh, on the true doctrine, which criticizes Christianity. So we have these two guys, and now I'm going to continue reading. And very many others objected to Christians that the gospel would tear states apart because it forbade legal remedy and taught certain other things ill-suited to political association. Origen, Nazianzus, and others wonderfully worked on these questions. However, they can be easily explained if we keep this in mind. The gospel does not introduce laws about the public state, but is the forgiveness of sins in the beginning of a new life in the hearts of believers. Besides, the gospel not only approves outward governments, but also subjects us to them, Romans 13.1. In a similar way, we have been necessarily placed under the laws of seasons, the changes of winter and summer, as divine ordinances. The gospel forbids private remedy. Christ instills this often so that the apostles do not think they should seize the governments from those who held otherwise, just as the Jewish people dreamed about the kingdom of the Messiah. 
Christ did this so that the apostles might know they should teach that the spiritual kingdom does not change the public state. Therefore, private remedy is prohibited not by advice, but by command, Matthew 5.39 and Romans 12.19. Public remedy made through the office of the public official is not condemned, but is commanded and is God's work, according to Paul, Romans 13. Now, the different kinds of public remedy are legal decisions, capital punishment, wars, and military service. Clearly, many writers have thought wrongly about these manners. They were in error that the gospel is an outward, new, and monastic form of government. Also, they did not see that the gospel brings eternal righteousness to hearts while it outwardly approves the public state. So we see that the gospel, while front and center, approves of these civil orders, these political orders. So go ahead and talk about that. Pastor Dembski, take us away. Well, what? Pastor Hill's looking at me funny. I'm listening attentively. <laughs> um like you said, we, we live under the the government that has been established, and yet we go on to say that, you know, unless we are being called to sin, you know, against God, um, and I can't remember if that's on the next page or if that was in the, the first, you know, there's uh, in the, the Augsburg Confession itself that states that specifically. But um, this idea that we continue, we return back to that idea of order and justice, that uh, in line 59, you've got the gospel forbids private remedy, this idea that um, you you look to handle issues through the proper channels rather than just going and taking revenge on someone, which um, it, it, it strikes me every once in a while, the popularity of uh, of like superheroes that have a vengeance motif that is so popular in our culture. Not just that it's superheroes and like someone saving a kitten from a tree, but someone getting back at people for what they've done. And that that's, that's huge. And that's big, you know, and uh, thinking about how many, how often that is kind of drawn into people's minds as so awesome. And wouldn't that be the ideal? It's like, actually as Christians, we, we wouldn't look to take revenge on someone. We wouldn't look for vengeance. Christ, you know, God will avenge, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but you've got those two references that we're not just uh, told that private remedy is uh, not advised and it wouldn't be good, but we're told, no, you, you don't go back and take vengeance. You do. You can seek justice and you seek it in the proper orders, but not, you know, what were you going to say, Pastor? Or, or to keep building on this dif- uh, distinction between the, the private remedy and the public remedy, you can talk about somebody who uh, appoints themselves judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, it always calls to mind for me the Three Musketeers where D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers go out and they, they appoint themselves uh, in charge of, of uh, killing somebody because of their crimes. But really, that's not their place. That's not what their job as musketeers and soldiers is to do. Their job is simply to follow the orders given them, not to be investigators and judge and jury and executioner. But... So unless often, they are a judge unless or they part are, of a jury or part of a jury, but they weren't working as an right, but they weren't. <laughs> uh, it's not up to them to take that on themselves. And sometimes we say, oh, if I were just in charge, if I could be king, emperor, whatever for a day, then I would fix all of this. But the fact is, God hasn't put at least me, thankfully, into that role of being uh, king or emperor or dictator or anything else for a day. That's a scary thought. But instead, he has called me to be uh, in the place that I'm in. And 
as a sinful person, I have a hard time being content with that. But at the same time, that is exactly where God has put me. And so it, we continue to pray for that contentment in those places that we serve, recognizing it's not up to us to establish our own place. But for those who are placed into and called into public service as government officials, maybe as a policeman or as a uh, mayor or a governor or a president or a legislator, a judge, any of those things, those people are there to do just that, to serve in that public role. And I, I think about the fact that this is one of the toughest things for people to accept, it seems like, this idea of not getting back at someone we always want to get the upper hand we always want to get the last word we always you know but to think about taking a step back and not being uh not necessarily seeing justice in this life not necessarily getting back at someone you know but having peace that we are in christ and that he has forgiven our sins and that we can pray for our enemies and we can love them and try to care for them even if there is justice that needs to be done you know in our world yeah i think to do that faithfully we have to keep front and center the gospel and i like this key line in here in paragraph 58 the gospel does not introduce laws about the public state but is the forgiveness of sins and the beginning of a new life in the hearts of believers. And so when we have that gospel, when we recognize that it's about the forgiveness of sins, that's what the right-hand realm is all about and directed about. Uh, when the law comes in in the right-hand realm, it accuses us and shows our sin and that we seek then repentance and faith, uh, that forgiveness of sins, that's the gospel. And then we are put forward into the civil realm in our daily lives to live faithfully, right? And, uh, and to do what we are called to do there faithfully. And that, I think that's part of the problem of what these guys, uh, Julian the Apostate and Celsus, had the problem with, is that they didn't understand the gospel. And so they just simply said, well, the gospel... You know, it, it doesn't actually work for civil order. Well, to some extent, you're right in the sense that we do still need the law, which predominates the civil realm. Um, but uh, it, it definitely is more effective when we understand the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, and then that in Christian freedom, in the freedom of the gospel, uh, there can be matters of prudential judgment. What is the best way to execute uh, justice so that we may have peace here in the civil realm? And uh, and we can use our reason and all our senses, all those first article gifts that God gives us to uh, figure those things out. Uh, with just about a minute left here, uh, any parting thoughts from you guys as we close up this uh, controversial topic on political order? Just the fact that I've been surprised at how many times I have seen, I have heard Christians argue that the church's first and foremost uh, job is not the proclamation of the gospel, but to like fix a person's life and make it the best thing ever and all that kind of stuff and like make the world operate properly and like trying to fix this world. And it's like, no, it, the, the gospel doesn't give us everything to fix this world. It gives us the forgiveness of sins and the hope looking forward to when Christ fixes this world. And in the meantime, we have imperfect people who uh, try to adjudicate laws and, and uh, get everything to be as orderly as possible. But we look forward to that last day when there will be order. But in the meantime, we rest in the forgiveness of Christ. Which certainly enlightens us uh, to uh, 
deal with all the messy and controversial issues of our human existence. Well said, brothers. Thanks for joining us, Pastor Merritt Dembski, Pastor Peter Ill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith. Again, to close our show today, I leave you with this thought. Responsible Christian life means participation in all the difficult and controversial areas of human existence. It means to be present in the civil life where decisions are being made, even in the civil realm government itself. The conventions mention specifically close contact with political, military, and economic power. So Christians are called to be intelligent and responsible in their citizenship. To do this, we must be trained to be faithful confessors of God's truth. That's what we seek to do here on Concord Matters. So thanks for stopping by, and until next time, keep confessing, church.